I always say thank you. I don't know what else to say. Um, you know, there's lots, even in a church our size, there's lots that just happen that people don't know about that just kind of make Sundays possible. And uh, part of that is worship. Part of that is those guys back there. And part of it is stuff that Shannon does in the office that you don't ever see. And uh, I'm just thankful for, for all the stuff that happens in our fellowship that just enables us to be together and, and worship. And, and uh, I am so aware that it's, it doesn't happen because of me. <laughs> it happens because of so many people, and God does it through so many people. And so when I say thank you when the worship team finishes, really that thank you is, is to a lots of people and to lots of things that allow uh, this moment where we share God's word together to be possible. So I'm excited to continue our series on discipleship this morning. And uh, we'll be in the book of Matthew again, chapter 6, and, and uh, I'll specify those verses in, in a moment. You know, uh, I kind of mentioned in my prayer this morning, uh, we pray for our community, and uh, our church is sort of place in our community. And, you know, one of the things I've, I've noticed about Gatesville that I know you have as well, uh, and maybe even Coriel County, Central Texas as a whole, but uh, there are lots of churches, right? And I would say we probably live in one of the most churched towns, if you judge by the number of church buildings uh, in our area. And I don't have any statistics to support that, but you just drive down Main Street and, and you'll lose count of how many churches that you see and, and what their names are. Uh, there's just a lot of them. And, and I think maybe the only other thing that we have that might rival the number of churches are the number of beauty salons. And, <laughs> And they still, both of them, keep popping up. You know, you think, there's another one? How do we have, how do we have room for another one? But, but they do. They both sort of keep popping up. And you know, you'll ask someone, uh, maybe you've been in a conversation like this. And you'll say, you know, where, where do you go to church? And they might say, well, I used to go to, to such and such Baptist, but now I go to whatever community worship center or whatever it is. And, uh, oh, okay. And, and you, you ask why. And. And, and one of the responses may be, I know you've heard this or maybe even said it. Well, uh, all the people at my other church are a bunch of immigrants, right? That is always sort of the catch-all excuse. Those Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, you know, even outside towns like ours with a church on every corner, uh, towns, cities that may not be all that churched at all, when the, when the topic of religion Church, especially Christianity, comes up often. That is the uh, excuse for not going or the excuse for, for not being a Christian at all. Maybe someone that's an atheist or, or someone that's an agnostic say, well, I've just seen a lot of hypocrisy in religious circles. And the news certainly doesn't uh, let up on that, do they? Anytime a high-profile religious figure, a minister, or, or anyone that has something to do in the realm of religion messes up, you're going to hear about it. You're, you're going to see it. Uh, not that you necessarily shouldn't, but that just sort of continues to promote that sort of idea uh, that, that Christian, Christianity, I mean, I picked that one out because that's the religion I am, but, but religion itself is full of hypocrites. And really, this isn't new. Uh, hypocrites and religion have existed side by side one another as long as people have had a relationship with God. I mean, hasn't it? It's not been something that's, that's not been true, but people point at it like it's this, this new thing. And uh, I think it's interesting when we turn to our text in a moment, 
Well, one of the, one of the most common hypocrites in Scripture are, are the Pharisees. We know that. And, and Jesus tells his disciples, well, don't be like the hypocrites, right? Don't be like the Pharisees, and we try not to be. But you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, don't go to worship because the Pharisees go there. He doesn't say don't be around church people because some of them are inevitably going to be hypocrites. But you think by the way that we use that word and the way that people react to religion and Christianity that, that it's like a disease and you're going to catch it. Like you need to wear a, a mask around like we do at flu season. You know, I don't want to be like a hypocrite. I want to be like them. Like if I don't go to a certain place that they're at, well, I won't catch it. But that's not the way it is. And hypocrisy isn't new. It's been around. And it's not just in Christianity, is it? Do you remember uh, when, when Osama bin Laden's compound was discovered and it was raided? Do you remember some of the stuff that they found in it? It was ironically a lot of the stuff that he would rail against and the videotapes that he would release talking about Western culture and how it's overly sexualized, which it, it is. I mean, I'm not arguing his point on that and how it's... Uh, you know, materialistic and uh, how it, it doesn't treat women well and, and you know, women are, are not modest and, well, they found pornography, they found brand new video games, they found all of this stuff that really fit into all the categories that he said, well, you know, that's, that's wrong and I'm not part of that. And of course, that's strict fundamentalist Islam, right? And we can point fingers at that and say, well, I, I'm not like that. But the problem is, uh, it's not just about one religion. It's not just about being a strict fundamentalist of a certain religion or, or, or liberal. It's about this idea that hypocrisy somehow is, is part of the religious experience. How many of you told your, your children not to say a certain word? Whether it's a really bad word or whether it's just like, but or something, you know. Can I say but and hold it? I did. And then you're... Then you turn around and you say it right in front of your kid. Anyone ever done that? Hypocrites. You're hypocrites. Anyone ever griped about someone because they're a gossip? Oh, so so she's just a gossip. Congratulations, you just gossiped. You hypocrite. It's part of the religious experience sometimes. And, and we look at the Sermon on the Mount as we do that together. It's tempting to see what Jesus says is simply, well, don't be like this, be like this. And that's part of it. That's part of it. Don't, don't be like the hypocrites. But Jesus, assuming you could do all that Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, let's just assume that you can and assume that you do it perfectly. You're still not necessarily a disciple of Jesus. You're, you're pretty good at keeping the rules. You're a better Pharisee, really, than all the other Pharisees. But it doesn't necessarily make you a disciple because as Jesus is addressing some practices. He's going to speak of some specific practices in our text today. And as he does so, it's not just about changing your behavior. He's really addressing an issue of the heart. And there's this scripture in the middle of our passage. I'll bring it up on the screen. And Jesus says, it's very familiar, for where your treasure is, it's verse 21 there under that Phrase, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think that is, is the main verse that revolves around what Jesus is trying to get 
get across in, in the passage I'll read in just a moment. That's central to following Jesus as being aware of what's in your heart. Of the things that, that make you act the way that you act. If I had a glass of water up with me and I was just holding it in my hand and I started to shake it, what would happen? The water, water would come out, right? The water would fall out of it. And if I asked you, well, why did water come out of that glass? You say, well, Matt, you dumbo, because you shook it. You shouldn't have shaken it. And that's a true enough answer. But it's also true that water came out of the glass because water was in the glass to begin with. And if it wouldn't have been in there, it wouldn't have come out. And so what's in your heart influences how you act on the outside. And I want you to listen to the context of, of this point that's on your screen that I think is in these verses. Now, I'm going to skip in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Then I'm going to skip to verse 16. And, and I know that I'm skipping the Lord's Prayer. So don't someone come up to me after the sermon and say, oh, you skipped it. I, I know we are. We're going to go back to it on another Sunday. But I think these practices that we're going to read about, Matthew chapter 6, as you're turning there, I think they really revolve around this idea of, of your heart. And, and, and the way you go about these practices is reflective of what's inside of you. So look with me at Matthew chapter 6. The verses will be on your screen as well. Beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. To be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. To be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray... Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father who knows what you for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. What's inside of the heart comes out in these practices that Jesus mentions. And the first practice he mentions is giving. So this awareness of what's in our heart has this influence, Jesus says, on how we give. People like to give to things that they think is important, are important, uh, that make an impact. And, and we talked this morning a little bit about uh, the fact that we raised over $1,800 for our youth. Uh, Eastwood is a, a giving church. And, and when I found out that's how much money we gave, I, I turned to Michelle and I said, well, that little donation we made, we can just take that back. It was in cash. Nobody will know. And it won't make that big of a difference, right? And when, when it's $1,800, you can say that. But if it would have been $200, that was a joke. I didn't take the money back. <laughs> it, it would have been more felt. 
Would have, the need would have been, I would have been more aware of the need. As long as I've been at Eastwood, we've, we've raised money for things, and, and it's astounded me the way that you give. And, and sometimes it's taken longer times to do that than others. We, right when I first came, we, we finished raising money, and, and we redid our kitchen in the back, and we just finished our parking lot. Before I came to Eastwood, uh, the sanctuary that we're in together, it, it was funded, and, and it was built, and it was paid off. People give to things like that because they see that it's important. They recognize that if they do it, uh, something's going to happen. And, and that's, that's a good reason to give. But Jesus also says that's not, if your motivation for giving is just so something will happen, so you will see something come to fruition, so you will get something out of the giving. He says that's the wrong motivation. He talks about how uh, people in the synagogues would, would, would play, you know, sound the trumpets, tooting their own horn, so to speak, when they prayed. And, and what I think he's referencing to in, in his day, they would proclaim these public fasts and, and, and they would have this, this citywide, communitywide fast and they would play the trumpets. And, and wherever you were, often it was because they, they needed rain, wherever you were, when that trumpet sounded, you would pray, you would fast and you would pray. And the thought was, if you prayed and you gave, then, then your prayer would probably be answered. And Jesus is saying, when that's the way that you pray, when that's your motivation for, for, give, for praying and then giving, you're not doing it because, well, you have a generous heart. You're not doing it because you're self-sacrificial. You're not even doing it because you feel like you have this sense of duty. You're doing it so you'll get something out of it. So he says in verses 3 and 4, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And I think the point in context is don't make giving about you. As you follow Jesus and he changes your heart, he can change not only what you give and how you give, but, but the reason and the motivation that you give as well. Don't you find it interesting? You have this same refrain over each one of these practices that we look at. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. But you notice the passage is not about the reward. He doesn't say your father who sees what is done in secret. Well, he's going to give you this specifically. He takes no time whatsoever to elaborate on what that is or, or necessarily in this passage how to get it. He just says there, there is a reward. But the reward is not the point. Because the reward are just like the people, hopefully, who are giving, whose hearts are focused on Jesus. The reward is a different kind of life, an eternal life that's in Christ. And, and it's more deeper than just temporary recognition. You know, as parents who are on a budget, we, we love it when people give our kids stuff because it's something we don't have to give them. But something happens if, if you're a grandparent, you know what happens? A, a birthday will come around or a holiday will come around. And, and, and we have kind of two different types of giving that come from my family. We have my parents who will approach our, our kids, whether we're in the room or not, and say, what do you want? What do you want for Christmas? What do you want for your birthday? And, you know, there's no telling what a kid's going to say. They might say 20 pounds of gummy bears. I mean, uh, you know, they just never know. But then I have an aunt, and she's a little more thoughtful. And she will approach myself or Michelle and say, what do you want to have. And inevitably, those two different gifts are going to be different, aren't they? 
And you know, we're not the kind of parents that never want our kids to have good things. We want them to have toys. We buy them toys from time to time. But we're not going to buy them 20 pounds of gummy bears. Even scripture says your father knows what you need even before you're asking. Parents know what kids need more than they do. And if you give my kid something, especially if I tell you, hey, I don't want my kid to have this. That doesn't usually happen with grandparents. Sometimes it does, right? It kind of shows what's in your heart. It kind of shows what's in the heart of that giver. It's less about the kid that you're giving to, and it's more about saying, oh, I gave this wonderful gift, and they got something great, and it was because of me, and I made them real happy. And Jesus says, Jesus says, that's not the kind of giving that someone as a disciple is concerned about. Where's your heart when you give? Not only to church, not just to, to financial things, but to your family, to your kids, to your job, and the way that you spend your time. Is it about you, or is it who Christ is making you to be? Your heart can influence that. Your heart also influences in the same idea how you pray. I read a story. Uh, a pastor, H.B. Charles, told this story. And, and he tells the story of a lady who came to his church. And every Sunday, if she was called on to pray, she had one prayer that she prayed. And it was very short. And it was simply, oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. And that was it. And, and, and she prayed that sometimes in, in public worship. And, you know, people didn't think a whole lot of it, but it, it got to kind of be their own joke. Well, if you call on her, she's going to say that short little prayer. And the kids kind of snickered about it. And one day someone finally asked her, why, why do you pray that prayer? And she said, well, pretty much it's the only prayer that I know. She said, uh, we don't live in a very good neighborhood. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, there's, there's violence outside our front door. And so I'll hold my kids, and, and the only thing I can say in that moment is, is, oh, Lord. And then we wake up the next day, and we're safe, and we're okay, and I say, thank you, Jesus. And, and then I bring my kids to the bus stop, and, and, and I drop them off because I know that I have to go to work, and, and, and they're going to be apart from me for most of the day, and, and, and I'm not sure what's going to happen to them, and I just pray, oh, oh Lord. And then, then I see them at the end of the day, and they're okay, and they're safe, and, and we're together again, and I say, Thank you, Jesus. And, and then she said, church comes around and, and it's Sunday and we're together with other believers. And, and God has just been so good to us that I, all I know to do is put those two prayers together. Oh, Lord, thank you, Jesus. I don't know if that's a true story or not, but he told that story. It almost sounds anecdotal, but, but I think it's, it's a demonstration of the kind of prayer that is born of not just duty, not just obligation, but of, of how we experience God in our lives and in our relationship with him. That's what prayer is for. Prayer had this really special place in Jewish life. And just like we have a person that comes and prays in front of our congregation, they would have public prayer and worship. But they also had prayer that happened in different places. Uh, sometimes people in the Bible pray laying down. Sometimes they pray standing up. Sometimes they pray sitting down. And so when Jesus gives these few verses... Uh, about praying in your closet. He's not, he's not saying, you know, don't pray like this. You know, physically pray like this. He, he's talking about your heart. And the kind of prayers that are true, the kind of prayers that are born of, of not of the way uh, you might look or sound or, or, or the way someone might perceive you. It's the kind of prayer that's, that's in your heart. When you pray, Jesus says, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. And I think if you can pray the same kind of prayer in a Sunday school class or in a Bible study group or in front of our church, that you would pray in a moment like that, then you're praying the kind of prayer that Jesus is telling his disciples to pray in this moment. 
You know, the early church people prayed in public. He's not saying don't pray in public. There, there are instances in the book of Acts where, where people in the church pray together. And Jesus says you get the same thing as, as the giving, the reward. Your father sees what is, what is done. He will reward you. You know, we think of the word reward, and, and it's this idea that, that you get something for something that you did. And, it, and it's ironic, isn't it? Because, because that's very much what is happening. God, Jesus says, you know, God will see what is done, and, and he will reward you. But still, that's not the point. That's not the motivation. And I think for us, prayer, more than any other practice that we do as a Christian, it's hard to do it and not think of what you get out of it. At night, I, I have this time, I try to every night with our kids. And, and as I lead them in prayer, I'm very careful about the words that I use. And, and one of the questions I will try and ask them to sort of pull out prayers from them, whether they say it or whether I pray for them, but, but I try to pull out the things that are in their hearts. And so instead of saying, Emily and Luke, what do you want to pray for? As if, you know, praying is just about making this list to a big Santa Claus in the sky. That's what I want to try to, to communicate that it's not about. Instead of saying, what do you want to pray for? I try to remember to say, Emily and Luke, what do you want to tell God? What do you want to tell Jesus? And that may not be a request at all. It might just be, you know, hey, I had a fun day on the playground. God wants to hear about that. Thank him for that. You know, in their little lives, that, that's a big thing. Or it might mean I fell and I skinned my knee on the playground. The point is that you pull these moments out, these moments that God has allowed you to experience. And as you point them towards him, you, you engage in this relationship with him. And Jesus is saying that's what prayer is. It's not about what you think someone else wants you to pray. It's not about what you think the church wants to hear when you pray or even, even what you think God wants you to say. It's about letting Jesus, letting Jesus focus your heart on him and letting the prayer come from that. And if nothing else, if, if you struggle with that, if, if for you prayer has become sort of a performance, it might be time for you to just stop and, and examine your heart and say, say, God, teach me to pray in a way, just like your disciples ask. Teach us to pray in a way that is meaningful, in a way that is centered on you and not centered on me. Because as we do that, as, as, you, as you give focus to, to this practice of prayer, the practice of giving, ultimately that affects, uh, ultimately that affects something a lot bigger. When, when we notice our heart, when we notice what's in it, it ultimately affects the things that we allow, allow to control us as people. <clears throat> Often the things that control us, we don't really even notice. And, and they might even have more to do with familiarity than they do with custom or need. And you know, I mentioned Emily's skinned knees. As uh, she gets older, you know, kids get skinned knees. That's just part of life. And, and she's learned to ride her bicycle, and she's in gymnastics, and she just likes to run anyway. And so uh, she was counting them last night. She goes, Dad, i got 13 boo-boos, you know. That's, that's pretty normal for, for a kid like her. But, but like many kids, she's bought into this idea that if she gets a boo-boo, no matter how big, it could be a cut, you know, a huge cut that's Blood's coming out of it, or it could just be a little scrape. She's, she's got a Band-Aid. And if she doesn't get a Band-Aid, it's, it's not going to get any better. And so Michelle and I have tried to, you know, we've tried to reason with a six-year-old. We've tried to say, now, Emily, the point of a Band-Aid is just to hold in blood. And so if you get a boo-boo, and, and it's barely even noticeable, and there's no blood, there's really not a point in getting a Band-Aid. You still don't want to be in the room with her if, you don't get, if she doesn't get a Band-Aid. It doesn't work. Uh, somehow the Band-Aid 
there's this little magic thing in her mind, and, and, and whether she gets a Band-Aid controls whether or not she's going to quit crying from that boo-boo. And so uh, some battles you just lose, and you just give a Band-Aid. But as we get older, we should be able to recognize the things that we allow control over us. Uh, an actual Band-Aid or a figurative Band-Aid. When Jesus talks about fasting, I'm, I'm not trying to sidestep this practice of fasting. I know that was part of our text this morning. But he talks about fasting in verses 16 through 18. And I don't want you to think that I'm ignoring. But at the this, at this same time, I recognize that if I were to get up and try to explain the validity of fasting to you, that probably you'd go to sleep and would not be interested in it. Uh, if, I, if I pointed out the fact that Jesus says, when you fast... Just like he says, when you pray, when you give. And so he expects his disciples are going to do that. Then I'd still be hard-pressed to sit here and convince you that, hey, maybe I need to make fasting a part of my regular uh, spiritual practice. It uh, doesn't mean that, that, that it's not important, but, but I think that the overarching thing that Jesus is addressing is not just the practice, but what's behind this practice. There were uh, voluntary fasts. The Pharisees engaged in fasting twice a week. And they did it. It was voluntary. There was only one day in the whole Mosaic law that says you will fast on this day. And it was the day of atonement. But they were so spiritual that they picked two days out of the week every week. And they fasted. Because in the same way they kind of let the rules about the Sabbath kind of overtake the way that they practiced their religion. They kind of did the same thing with fasting. And, and it became something that kind of controlled how they experienced God. And so Jesus says, don't, don't disfigure your face if, if you fast and you do that for God. Or he says, when you fast, doesn't he? But you know, you ever gone without food for a day? You ever gone without food for, for one meal? If I skip a meal... Not only are you going to hear my stomach rumbling, I'll probably say, oh, I'm getting kind of hungry. You know, you're going to hear it from me. It just kind of comes out. It's not that I'm on purpose trying to complain. It's just it kind of has that hope on me. And then if I skip two meals, by the time I get to that third meal, oh, man, I'm, I'm starving. You ever said that? Gosh, I'm starving. How many of us say we're starving, but really we're not starving? In fact, the fact is I could, I could miss a couple days and not eat anything and still not be technically starving. But food kind of has a hold on me like that. And Jesus is saying, don't allow it to have control over your life. When you fast, he tells them, put oil on your head. Wash your face. So it's, obvious, it's not obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your father. And then there's that same refrain. Washing and anointing with oil, they weren't special things. You just, he's basically saying, take a bath, you know. <laughs> Go about your normal day. Be clean. Whether you're fasting or praying, or giving, whatever you're doing, as you're doing, you know, uh, if you're really living for the Lord, you're going to sacrifice sometimes. That's just part of it. But you don't have to allow those things that you give to God, or pray to God, or, or however you serve God and glorify God. You don't have to allow those things to be things that control you. They shouldn't control you. I think some of us, if we examine our heart, will find things that, that have a hold on us, that control us, whether it's food, or or, or alcohol, or smoking, or gossip, or overeating. <clears throat> Those things are there. And, and, and the first step as a disciple, not of, of being cured and not having any struggles with it, but the first step is just recognizing that, hey, that's there. That's, that's in us. You know, if you shake us, that's what's going to come out. That's part of who we are. And, and when we read these words of Jesus, talk about following him, it can so easily be divorced from, from affecting these areas of our lives. 
And you might read these words and, and you could be tempted to think, oh, these were just for Jesus's first sort of immediate disciples. That's who he's talking to. But, you know, these same disciples are the one that he said, go to all nations and make disciples for me. And so we ultimately the church, this church owes our existence to the obedience of these first disciples. And so we, in a very real sense, are them. Jesus says, if your heart is focused on me, what's, what's inside that should influence the way you go about serving for me and living for me and, and striving to do your best for me? It's your heart. I heard a story about a little girl named Katie that went to uh, the pediatrician. And, and she was getting a routine checkup. And during that time, uh, you know how the doctor will do? The doctor looked in her ears and uh, the doctor said, is, is Big Bird in your ears? Katie said, no. And, and the doctor looked in her mouth. And, and she said, is, is Cookie Monster in your throat? And Katie said, no. And then she listened to your heart, her heart. And the doctor said, is, is Barney in there? And, and she just matter of factly said, no, Jesus is in my heart. Barney is on my underwear. <laughs> she knew, she knew that Barney didn't really compete with Jesus. That that's what belonged in her heart was Christ. And we use that phrase when we become a Christian, don't we? Well, I accepted Christ into my heart. And sometimes, for many of us, that's the last time we examine it. Well, Jesus is in there. You take care of it. But that's not what Jesus is. You examine your heart. You notice what you're allowing in there alongside of Jesus, sometimes over Jesus. And so this morning, I encourage you to think about what is it that you've allowed access to your heart other than Jesus? That influences your relationship with him. Let's pray together. God, it's, it just seems like a simple thing to uh, think about to think about our hearts. And, and, and sometimes it seems like a juvenile thing. But at the same time, we believe as Christians that, that you, you live within us. The Holy Spirit comes and... And the Holy Spirit wants to change us and cleanse us and grow us and sanctify us. But God, at the same time, we, we need to know that we hinder that. And so forgive us for those things that we allow more influence in our lives than we do you. God, help us to follow you. Help me to follow you as, as, as just a disciple. And God, as we do so as a church, would you, would you lead us in the path that you would have us and, and forgive us, God. Help us to... To, to be, be aware of those things that we need to, to just give up to you. And, and God, we know it's, it's hard and we need help. And Lord, help us to be courageous enough to notice those things, to repent of them, and to allow you to do your work in us and through us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.